How's it going? Hey, Harry. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Not bad. As good as I can be, you know, in quarantine and everything. Yeah, totally. Um, nice to meet you. Yeah. Teeny bit of research to some what you've been up to. And, uh, man, looks like you're doing some really cool stuff. Oh, so. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, awesome, awesome. We need more people like you. Oh, jeez, thanks. Yeah, listen to your uh, YouTube video with, uh, what was his name? Oh, right, this guy Riley, your friend Riley. Yeah, yeah. He, he was great, he was great. He had some awesome stuff. So, basically, I just have like this little introduction that I do with all my guests, kind of just introducing them to the viewers, and then we'll get right into it. Awesome, awesome. Sweet, okay. Sorry if it sounds staged or whatever, but... Uh, do your thing, do your thing. Yeah. I'm not watching. Respect, respect. <laughs> okay. What's going on, everyone? I'm Harry Potvin, and welcome back for another episode of The H Panel, the show where we bring on guests from all different backgrounds to talk mental health. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Tyler Hamilton. Tyler is a former professional American cyclist with a career stretching from 1995 all the way to 2008. He is notorious for being the only American rider to win one of the five monuments of cycling, where he took the Liège-Bastogne-Liège in 2003. Perfect. Tyler was also a teammate of Lance Armstrong during the Tour de France of 1999, 2000, and 2001, and appeared in both the 2000 and 2004 Summer Olympics where he received a gold medal in the individual time trial in the latter. Additionally, he was titled a national road race champion in 2008. What is more impressive than his athletic accomplishments, however, is the bravery and honesty that he has exhibited in the face of adverse adversity. In the year of 2011, Tyler began opening up about doping practices found within the sport of cycling and co-authored a book in 2012 titled The Secret Race. With this book, along with multiple speeches and presentations, Tyler is using his platform and experience not only to come forward and be truthful about his own usage, but to also advocate for anti-doping practices and clean sport execution. Tyler, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, nice to be on your uh, YouTube channel, awesome. Terry. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Uh, before we get too into it, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your upbringing, why you chose cycling, stuff like that. Yeah, I grew up in a town called Marblehead, Massachusetts. It's uh, about half hour north of Boston. Two great parents, great older brother and sister. Did a lot of activities outdoors as a kid. I uh, became a ski racer probably when I was age like seven. That was my real true love, my you know sport that I just uh, really admired. And you know, I want I was hoping to be you know one of the better ski racers in the world at that time, and pursued it up through high school and then into college. And I, let's see, my sophomore year in college at the University of Colorado in Boulder, I. Um, had an accident uh, training with the ski team. We were dry land training actually on mountain bikes, and I uh, went over the bars and went head first into the into the ground and broke two vertebrae in my upper back. Yeah, so I, I couldn't ski that winter. It was the probably, you know the first winter I was off ski since uh, I don't know since I was maybe three years old. Stayed in bed for like six or eight weeks, and when I got out of bed, the doctor said I could ride a road bike. So you know I'd done a little bit of road cycling um, to keep my legs in shape for the ski season but i uh was really green to it uh and little did i know boulder colorado was a huge cycling town so i got that out there on the roads outside of boulder and quickly realized i was pretty good at it there were a lot of uh top like professional and top amateur riders there i was able to kind of hang with them and i kept people kept telling me that i was pretty good at it so i joined the uh university cycling team and a year later won the collegiate national championship 
a year on the U.S. national team, and I was professional all my year. So I was taking big, huge steps every year. I went professional in 1995. The first two years of my professional career, I was on like a, like a domestic professional team. If you follow baseball, it was like maybe a double or triple A baseball team. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. We, we raced probably 70 to 80% of the time in the States and then about 20% of the time over in Europe. Europe's kind of the uh, where the elite tier of cycling is. In my third year as a professional, we got a bump in sponsorship and we went from basically being a double or triple A baseball team to a major league cycling team. That year, it was uh, our goal to race in the Tour of France. Basically, our, our home base became Europe. You know, we brought on European riders onto the team, European staff onto the team. And uh, I quickly realized that uh, at the top level of uh, doping was pretty prevalent in the sport. So the, yeah, the spring of 1997, my third year as a professional cyclist was when I started to dope. Yeah, I kind of progressed through my career. I was super green going into it, but you know, by the end, I was, uh, I, I would say I was a seasoned veteran probably. Yeah, it was unfortunate, but doping was very prevalent at that time. It was presented to me initially by a team doctor saying this is how you can be a professional a real a true professional so it started with like a little red testosterone pill eventually it led to a drug called epo which basically boosts your uh, hematocrit your red blood cell count so in a sport like cycling or a sport like swimming yeah you know just a game changer game changer and then you know a few years later that led to something called blood doping the doctors will extract your blood store it in a fridge for a few weeks and then your body recoups naturally back to its normal hematocrit level and then they put the blood back into you and you're a few points higher yeah eventually you know as i became more of a seasoned veteran in cycling the, the results came and you know i was very successful at you know won big races way beyond what i ever imagined you know I, I raced in eight Tour de France's, and initially I was just happy to be on the start line for my first one. So I had really no idea where it was all going. But yeah, I mean, the results took off. But yeah, then it all came crashing down. I had a positive doping test in uh, uh, September of 2004. Denied it for a long time. Fought it. Eventually, I came to terms with the truth when um, they opened a federal investigation into Lance Armstrong and the U.S. Postal Service team. I walked to basically the edge of a cliff and it was either tell the truth or or you could go to jail, you know. I think it was in maybe 2010 or 11 is when I first, the first time I told the truth in front of anybody besides, a, you know, my ex-wife. But this was in front of a grand, grand jury in Los Angeles. Telling the truth for the first time, it was just, it was a super powerful moment for me, life-changing for me. You know, I'd been really miserable up to that point. That was when I realized I need to tell the truth to the people that are really important to me. It came with a lot of consequences, for sure. For sure, it was a big secret. It had been going on in the world of cycling for a long time. Cycling is such a hard sport, and um, people were cutting corners for many, many years, and, you know, it, it got to that point. And finally, it came crashing down. Some people were very extremely happy that I finally told the truth because I had been, you know, denying it for a long time. Some people were extremely disappointed. Some people were, you know, extremely pissed off fans of other riders that were implicated by you know my telling the truth so yeah that took a few years to kind of navigate all that the first time i really told the truth in, in front of the public was i did an interview with 60 minutes and then after that i decided you know that wasn't enough of the truth it was just a small little snippet and i decided to write a book and uh so about spent about two and a half years writing a book yeah it was uh, extremely hard you know looking looking myself right in the mirror dealing with some of my own demons really hardest thing i ever did but probably the best thing i ever did not necessarily proud of what's in the book but i'm certainly proud of doing it it was complicated once the book came out because you know it, there others were implicated unfortunately and they were they were part 
the truth. And so, yeah, it had its consequences, but I wouldn't change a thing, really. Here I am today, yeah, dealt with, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly. I'm kind of 49 years old. Yeah, I've lived a lot of life in my 49 years. Sometimes I feel like I'm 80. So I guess my first question for you, some fans of yours and other people that I've kind of, you know, read up about, they've referred to you as like an incredibly tough individual, often referring back to when you won the 16th stage of the Tour de France in 2006, after you basically had your collarbone taped in place. In your own speech with Oxford Union in 2016, you mentioned that uh, Hamiltons are tough. Do you think that this mental and physical toughness that, you know, you kind of had in your upbringing helped you kind of push through the adversity that came your way when you opened up about all these scandals? That toughness helped a lot. However, you know, toughness can be a blessing and a curse, you know what I mean? I think on the mental side of things, sometimes I buried, you know, I was so tough, I was just able to bury, bury, bury. And I was pretty good at covering it up, you know, and putting on the face. And I think eventually it kind of came to its head and I need, you know, I need to kind of reach out for help. And the, those are actually in the, in the, in some of my best years is when I was like first diagnosed with uh, clinical depression. Looking back now, I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, the situation I was in. I think I do, I do have a predisposition for you know, depression. It is in one side of my family. Looking back now, just with everything that I was going through with the kind of double life that I was leading, you know, I think a lot of that had a big effect on yeah i was actually just gonna say like i can't even imagine the kind of mental state you'd be experiencing when you have like this super big lie for yeah. a lot of people who you know experience like depression and stuff like with my own personal experiences as well like bottling up a bunch of feelings seems like a quick fix but in the long term in the grand scheme of things it like ends up just overpouring anyway but it did help me get through i had some super low moments so low so i mean was close to as low as you can get really you know and i do feel like I, my toughness helped me get through that i do feel extremely lucky to have like awesome family and friends and people that were supporting me through all this like there are other individuals other cyclists that have gone through similar stuff that i've gone through that aren't here today you know it was my ex-wife haven who uh, told me like hey i think something's not right i think you should go talk to somebody i didn't know you know sometimes it's like rock hard everybody but it may be men a little bit more you know it's like we're so sometimes stoic and oh we can get through this and we don't need help and sometimes you just need to accept that you're struggling and reach out you know that was i think 2003 when i first reached out to somebody and i feel like today it's come such such a long ways you know Harry, it's great what you're doing it's great what you're doing thank you yeah i completely agree like one of the big themes in the speech that i had for the panel was that the, the two words like man up are almost yeah. they're like abused not just like in sports but like in society as a whole men are just kind of programmed to think oh i shouldn't show emotion and yeah. that's kind of what i'm trying to you know get away from yeah let's see i was diagnosed like 2003 with clinical depression and i didn't tell anybody about it besides like my super inner circle you know i didn't talk about it publicly i think till maybe 2009 or 2010. You know, I wanted to keep it a secret. I thought it was more showing signs of weakness or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, man up. That's a, you know, that's a tough, that's a bad one. That hasn't helped uh, people that are, that are suffering mentally. And uh, what else? Um, you know, when I was a kid, I heard a lot from my parents and I don't think they meant it in a bad way, but they were like, don't have anything nice to say. Don't say it at all. So I kind of took that as like, man, sometimes I don't feel that nice inside and I, and I didn't want to say it. And it's okay to be feeling bad or feeling not so good or not so confident. Everything is fleeting, right? It's not going to be like that that way forever, that's for sure. There's a lot of simple steps you can do to feel better. I feel like I'm a little bit of a veteran now. I don't know, I'm comfortable with where I am. You know, even on bad days, you know, yesterday, the I mean, this whole new world right now with the coronavirus, 
it's up and down, you know, some, I had a bad day yesterday and, uh, you know, today's a good day, you know, things, it was like one bad thing after another and I was just feeling kind of bad for myself. You know, I was doing, I did a little research on your Harry and I was listening to one of your YouTube, uh, videos today that guy riley yeah riley bodeway is his last name oh yeah he's some great stuff so yeah definitely yeah shout out to him he's he's awesome some super simple steps and i was like i tried a few of those this morning I'm like this is great just stuff to make you more a little bit more present yeah shout out to riley yeah shout out. good stuff you were a teammate of lance armstrong for a numerous amount of years and in an interview with graham bensinger you mentioned that you had run into lance and at a restaurant afterwards what was going through your mind when he actually confronted you after all this stuff kind of came to light yeah you know that was at, at a kind of a crazy period for both lance and i probably wasn't the best idea idea for lance to approach me but you know it's uh, just a heightened time very stressful for both of us and, you know i think he probably wishes he didn't do that but he wouldn't each to their own we all go through stuff and we all make some poor decisions once in a while so for me it's water under the bridge yeah we i went through a lot you know with him personally and just with the whole situation with admitting to doping and all that and so did lance you know he's uh hit a you know a really hard fall there was a time i really didn't like him i've kind of forgiven him i've forgiven myself you know i've forgiven everybody you know we all went through a lot especially the all the, the riders that had to come to terms with telling the truth no, i mean there's a huge percentage massive percentage didn't have to tell the truth yeah. I, I would say i haven't talked to everybody but i'm, I'm assuming it's been difficult for all but important too you know it's a um, it's a big secret it had been going on for a long long time and it was like it need, the truth needed to be told hopefully the kids that are racing at the highest level today are uh, you know doing it the right way and hopefully you know we paid a price to have it sport much cleaner today than, than it was back in the dark days i have a question from one of my viewers uh who's a big fan of yours he asked how do you think that the current state of social media presence with respect to sponsorship contributes to burnout amongst young, young athletes and specifically U23s, and are you glad that this is something that wasn't super important during your career? So I'll answer the last part first. Yes, absolutely. I'm glad I didn't have social media when I was a bike racer. Absolutely. And I was thinking about that this morning when I was out hiking with my dog. God, yeah. Social media is a tough one. You know, it's, uh, it's almost like you have to do it a little bit for the athletes, but it's like really important to keep it balanced, to find that balance. I don't know if I'm the right person to ask or a bit old school I, I use social media but it's you know in a way i wish i didn't even have to but i yeah i think it's important for the for, the, for cyclists today i mean everybody has has it and, you know you got to use it at least a little bit but i think you need to find that balance and not get too sucked down the that, uh, wormhole so to speak get caught up that you know everybody's life is much better than yours because uh, most of the time that's not the truth well i think i heard you saying with, with your talk with uh, riley like you know you're only seeing people's best their best moments on, on you know on instagram or whatever so some people can get caught up in, in seeing too much of that and, and thinking their life just stinks before i go back to some questions about specifically cycling you mentioned previously that you know once when this whole thing kind of unraveled and all the truth came out and everything you were not really welcomed in the cycling community anymore and i don't know if that's changed since then yeah it's changed a lot it's changed a lot i mean not completely for sure i mean i, I definitely had haters absolutely yeah and that's that's okay and i you know i don't hate them for hating me and that's all right and then you have the people kind of in between you know it's way easier yeah to, to now like go to watch a bike race than it was you know, know 10 years ago yeah I was, I was my name was black completely black you know i think from the outside it looked like myself and just a couple other individuals doped and nobody else did i think now since you know some of the truth or let's call it more of the truth has come out i think people have realized that a 
okay, so I can just, there was a period where it's just really dirty. I had no warning ahead of time. It wasn't like that second year as a professional cyclist when I was on that AAA cycling team. I didn't know what to expect that next year. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything. I had no idea what was going to, it was going to just blindside me. It was going to be a choice that I'd have to make. But yeah, I made that choice. I knew it was wrong, though. I knew it was wrong from the beginning. You know, it bothered, it bothered me the whole time. Think to myself, well, everybody else is doing it. This is, this is just what I have to do to, to compete. Just kind of accept it and join along, I guess. So now I just have a couple questions about cycling in general, because I obviously am not that educated with cycling. You know, performing in the big cycling events that you have performed in, it for sure has like an incomparable amount of pressure. So how did you handle that stress and pressure that came with these competitions? Lots of deep breaths, you know. I, I don't know, I trained hard, I tried to come to all the races prepared as best prepared as possible and I, I feel like i've been competing my whole life really whether it was skiing or soccer or baseball or whatever it was i was always competing i think it built up on you over the years like you know i climbed the ranks and then you know and then after i left left the u.s postal team i became like a team leader on another team and then you're expected to win or expected to be up there you know whereas when when you're a domestic you're kind of it's like you're a helper when i was on U.S. Postal, I was, most of the time I was riding for Lance, trying to help Lance. And I went to another team and I was trying to beat Lance myself. Yeah, you have a lot riding on your fitness level. You know, so like, you better be training hard. You better be staying focused. You better be getting enough rest. You better be eating right. You know, and then obviously there was, there was the doping element too. So it was like, but you better be checking off all the box. By no means were we like training a little bit and just doping around. Everything had to be perfect to a T. But unfortunately, yeah, there was a, this, the doping side of it included the higher that you were on a team basically ranking you know the you know the more pressure you had and like your you know your results could be responsible for the sponsor you know coming back again the next year because a lot of cycling sponsors are pretty fleeting they're around sometimes for just two three years the tour de france is arguably one of the hardest if not the hardest sporting events around the world how both mentally and physically do you even begin to prepare for something like that like what kind of training goes on behind the scenes a ton of, i mean years and years and years of training so much time on the bike incredible i was just a skinny rail from riding my bike so much i was i would probably weigh I don't know, 25 pounds lighter than it was or than I am now. Incredible dedication, you know, to do well in, in a race like the Tour de France. Your weight's got to be perfect. You've got to be well rested. So many elements go into it. I think I felt like I was kind of preparing for that my whole life. Really. Straight away as a kid, I was told I was a good athlete. I kind of just wanted to do that. School was, like, you know, I was kind of like a B student. At athletics, I always excelled at it. And so I don't know. Yeah, I felt like I've been training for it my whole life. At the Tour de France level, yeah, you almost have to live like a monk. Not the most glamorous of lives. You know, people see it from the outside and say, they see, they see the Tour de France and all these screaming fans. But the real truth is there's a lot of, like, dark days, a lot of just time on the bike when you're not feeling that good in the cold wind and rain out in the middle of nowhere. I always would say when I was a bike racer, I would say for every 99 bad days there's one good day but that one good day or great day could be you know maybe winning a stage in the tour de france it's a very difficult sport you can't take too much time off it was just on, you're on the bike a ton, a ton and traveling a ton yeah away from your friends and family a lot so my my last question for you tyler is if there's an up-and-coming cyclist watching this right now who's kind of maybe frustrated with their results or like thinking you know maybe i should turn to doping to get the edge or be ahead of my competitors what is something that you would want to say to them if you were face to face don't do it don't do it don't do it think about it take a 
take a couple steps back real quick, take a few deep breaths. Don't do it. Think about the consequences. It's not worth it. You know, you have to live with every decision you make. And this is a big decision. You know, if you go down that, that wormhole, who's, who knows what's next? I, I do have a small coaching business and I coach a lot of kids. And it's one of the things I tell them straight away is to be aware of that. And, you know, think about it now. Think about it now before it might get um, pushed on you. I mean, look at what happened to me. Look at what happened to Lance. Look what happened to a lot of my school teammates. You know, it's not that pretty and it's not that fun to live with a big, big lie. I wouldn't recommend it. I wouldn't recommend it. You want to be able to look in the mirror and like and see the true you. But it would, you know, it would wake me up in the middle of the night in secrets. You know, it would wake me up in the middle of the night. I call them committee meetings. I just stare at the ceiling, you know, thinking about it. And I don't know. If you live a life of truth, then you have, you have nothing to worry about. And you can be really happy with yourself. And it's okay. You, you put your best effort in. And so whether you're first or 49th, doesn't matter. Put your best effort. Look, you can be proud of yourself. When that doctor came into my room with that little red testosterone pill, I wish I gave myself a chance to like at least ride a few more years and see see how well I could have done clean. You know, but I didn't give myself that opportunity. So. Some great words to listen to to my viewers. So this last little part now, after every interview that I have, I kind of just give you know like thirty seconds or whatever for the interviewee to kind of say anything that they've got going on in their life, like a little plug of some sort. So if you got anything, oh, what about we haven't talked about you? What do we? So what about you? We don't talk about me. <laughs> you just retired from swimming. What's going to be your next sport? Oh man, I don't know. I don't know. What about cycling? I've been biking a lot because I, I took a couple months off of swimming. Enjoyed the non-athletic yeah. life for a little bit. Uh, oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah, so I'm trying to get, you know, back into cardio especially. So I've been biking because running kind of hurts my back. And, yeah. man, like, yeah. I, I can't do a Tour de France, I'll tell you that, for free. I built up to 20K bike, which hurts, nice. but nice. we'll see. A lot of swimmers transition over to cycling. I bet you'd be a good cyclist. Thank you. Yeah, that's a big thing with swimmers. It's like either cycling or triathlon. Those are, yeah. those are the big two. Yeah. So maybe, yeah. who knows? Yeah, do you have some uh, good dirt roads or trails around there? Riding on dirt's pretty fun. Oh yeah, yeah. We got we got a lot of dirt, gravel. Yeah, nice. Yeah, a lot awesome. of uphill too. All right, there you go. That's good for you. Yeah, awesome. it feels it feels horrible, but. <laughs> awesome. Well, if I'm, when I'm over in your parts, next time I'm in your parts, we'll go out for a ride. I'll hold you to that, Tyler. All right. So yeah, if you got anything going on in your life, I have a small coaching business. Yeah, it's called Tyler Hamilton Training. We write training programs for cyclists like indiv individual like customized training programs that's something i've been focusing on yeah I do a lot of work um for the fight against multiple sclerosis been doing that since like 1997 i think cause is really important to me i, I do some work with this uh, foundation called can do ms they're based out of uh Avon, Colorado, in the Vail Valley, helps people with MS and, and their support partners on, on how to live a better life with MS. A good friend passed away from MS, Jimmy Hugo, the founder of this uh, foundation back in 2010. He was a good friend of mine. Yeah, it's something I'll continue to support kind of for the rest of my life. You know, we're all, we all should feel pretty lucky about having good health. The people that suffer with MS have, uh, you know, been thrown a real curveball. So yeah, I do, I do what I can to help, to help, and I put on a charity event for, for that, uh, for that foundation. Yeah. All right. I will put all those links in the description below for anyone who's interested. Other than that, yeah, Tyler, thank you so much for joining me, uh, for this episode. I really appreciate it. Yeah. It's, hey, it's awesome what you're doing. Keep up the good work. Thank and, you. And, uh, I think it's fantastic. Happy to get on 
another video with you anytime. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll send you my number. Yeah, just stay in touch, all right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We'll be in touch for sure. Awesome. See you, Harry. Take See care. You. Thank you. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. Thank you for watching another episode of The H Panel. I really appreciate you guys. For more episodes of The H Panel, click this button right here. And if you want to subscribe for more videos from myself, subscribe is right down below. Thanks, guys.